The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. Surprisingly enough, indisputable scientific evidence for the benefits of exercise was not established until the early 1950s. But the ancients hadn't been too far off. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Roman physician Galen had defined exercise as, quote, vigorous movement that causes breathing to increase. In my opinion, he stated, the best exercises of all are those which are able not only to exert the body, but also delight the soul. Exercise is not meant only to burn calories, make you look good, help you live longer. It should also bring you joy. Good morning, everyone. It's Tuesday. This is the Next Big Idea Daily, and I'm your host, Michael Kovnat. I hope you had a good New Year's Eve, and I hope you're starting 2024 off right. Maybe you're getting a jump on all those resolutions. If you're like me, one of those resolutions has to do with exercise. It's a pretty common goal these days to get more exercise, so much so that there's now a multi-billion dollar industry peddling yoga mats, kettlebells, gym memberships, and Peloton bikes. But even though our passion for fitness feels particularly modern, it turns out there's a long and storied history here, dating back at least to the ancient Greeks. And it's a story Bill Hayes tells in his new book, Sweat, A History of Exercise. Bill is the author of six previous books, the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship in nonfiction, and a frequent contributor to the New York Times and other publications. He's also a lifelong fitness fanatic, and in trying to understand his own obsession, he documents a cultural passion that's inspired everyone from Plato to Jane Fonda to the latest Instagram trendsetters. Here's Bill with some key insights from his book. Exercise is not a modern phenomenon. The very idea that exercise is good for you, for improving overall health and well-being, has been a presumption, even a truism, going back to ancient Greece, Rome, Egypt, China, and virtually every culture. More than two millennia ago, the Indian physician known as Susruta advocated exercise to maintain equilibrium in the body. In the Western world, an Athenian wrestler turned physician named Herodicus was a trailblazer in prescribing exercise for his patients. But it was one of his students, Hippocrates, now commonly known as the father of medicine, who fully articulated the tenets of exercise in the 5th century BC. Eating alone will not keep a man well. He must also take exercise, Hippocrates stated. For food and exercise, while possessing opposite qualities, yet work together to produce health. Hippocrates is credited with writing two treatises on healthful living, covering diet, exercise, rest, and other matters. He emphasized that one must pay careful attention to, quote, proportion exercise to bulk of food, to the constitution of the patient, to the age of the individual, and so on. In other words, an exercise regimen must be customized to the person and, by definition, incorporated into daily life. 
It is from these ancient beginnings, it's no stretch to say, that our modern notion of a workout plan derives. Gyms and naked exercising were common in antiquity. In ancient Greece and in the early Roman Empire, there was at least one gym in every town. The gym was as much a part of culture and society as a theater and marketplace, albeit a place for men and boys of the upper classes alone. Women were not permitted into gyms, even just to watch. While it's true that Plato, who, by the way, had been a competitive wrestler, says in his treatise The Laws that women, both young and old, should exercise together with the men, should does not mean they could or did, but suggests an ideal, one that, in reality, didn't occur broadly until the 19th century, when a whole confluence of events, the impact of the Industrial Revolution and the burgeoning women's rights movement, for example, began to make it permissible at long last for women and girls to sweat too. Now, back in Plato's day, gyms, also called palestras, were generally official buildings owned by the city and with dedicated staff, including personal trainers and the ancient equivalent of towel boys. Private gyms existed too, and for these, visitors paid fees, just as one does today. They were gym members, essentially. And where they were gym members, guess what? There were gym rats, too. Really. The ancient Greek word for gym rat literally translates as palestra addict or gym addict. But the one thing there were none of back then was gym clothes. Everyone did it naked. In fact, the word gymnastics comes from the Greek term for exercising in the nude, the standard practice in ancient Greece for hundreds of years. Actual human sweat was bought and sold. The sweat of athletes was considered a prized commodity in the ancient world. After competing or simply exercising, athletes would scrape the accumulated sweat from their bodies and funnel it into small pots with a metal tool created expressly for this purpose called a strigil, shaped like a celery stalk. This presumably funky-smelling mixture, called gloyos, was considered so precious that some went so far as to take scrapings from bathhouse walls where athletes had leaned and left sweat tracings from their bodies. Ancient Greek and Roman writers such as Pliny the Elder attested to this practice. Pliny reported that the masters of the gladiatorial schools sold such scrapings for the ancient equivalent to thousands of dollars. Hard as this might be to believe, records of ancient business dealings confirm that this was true. Gloios provided a significant revenue stream for the Greek gyms at which it was sold, a needed supplement to membership fees at private gyms. It was used for medicinal purposes, the belief being that Gloios must contain the essence of erite, the striving for excellence that defined a great athlete. But here's the thing. Athletic sweat wasn't used, as one might guess, to enhance athletic performance, uh, 
it was used to treat the most uncomfortable maladies on one's most private parts, hemorrhoids and genital warts. Christians disapproved of exercise. The culture of exercise and athletics that was so much a part of the ancient Greek and Roman DNA was essentially snuffed out with the rise of Christianity. The first Christian Roman emperor, Constantine the Great, banned gladiatorial contests in AD 325. And some 70 years later, Theodosius I brought the Olympic Games to an end completely. This wasn't simply because physical activity was antithetical to the tenets of Christianity, but instead because athletic competition was linked to pagan rituals, such as blood sacrifices of animals, and dedicated to the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. This had a trickle-down effect on exercise itself. Cathedrals replaced gyms as sacred sites. It was the Holy Spirit the soul that was now to be glorified, not the body. Now, not that this happened overnight or with a single decree, but certainly within a few hundred years, the notion of exercise for the sake of exercise was considered indecent and definitely unchristian. As St. Bernard proclaimed in the ninth century, quote, the spirit flourishes more strongly and more actively in an infirm and weakly body. This anti-exercise attitude did not change significantly until the enlightenment of the 18th century, by which time there was a much better understanding of the human body. Later, Christianity and exercise would be coupled together, a leading example of this being the YMCA, Young Men's Christian Association, which was established with gyms in the 19th century, and helped launch a worldwide movement called Muscular Christianity. Surprisingly enough, indisputable scientific evidence for the benefits of exercise was not established until the early 1950s. One of the leading pioneers in this area was a British epidemiologist named Jeremy Morris a man who, after his death at age 80 in 2009, was called by some obituary writers the man who invented exercise. Note his profession. Although he trained as a medical doctor, Morris had become a clinical epidemiologist focused on public health. After World War II, one issue that emerged as a serious concern was a dramatic rise in coronary heart disease, the exact cause of which was unknown at the time. But Morris had a hunch that a person's occupation might somehow be a factor. In what now seems like an ingenious idea, Morris designed a scientific study focusing solely on the drivers and conductors of double-decker buses, trams, and trolleys. For more than a year, he studied over 30,000 men. Although they worked in pairs in the same vehicle, their jobs were completely different. Drivers just sat and drove all day, whereas conductors hopped off and back on the tram or trolley constantly, and in the case of double-decker buses, up and down the stairs countless times 
over their shifts. For these men, work itself was a workout. The results were unambiguous. In Morris's paper on the study, first published in The Lancet in 1953, he concluded that the conductors had far less heart disease than the sedentary drivers, and it appeared in them at a later age. Morris felt that it was the greater physical activity of conducting that explained why these men remained healthier than their counterparts behind the wheel. His study helped establish a solid foundation for subsequent scientific research into exercise, paving the way for the fitness and wellness-obsessed culture we live in today. But in retrospect, the ancients hadn't been too far off. After all, nearly 2,000 years ago, the Roman physician Galen had defined exercise as, quote, vigorous movement that causes breathing to increase. And yet, Galen felt it certainly shouldn't make you miserable. In my opinion, he stated, the best exercises of all are those which are able not only to exert the body, but also delight the soul. Remember his words as you huff and puff, stretch and sweat. Exercise is not meant only to burn calories, make you look good, help you live longer. It should also bring you joy. Thank you, Bill. All right, everyone, get yourself to the gym and burn some calories. And when you're on the treadmill, be sure to listen to tomorrow's episode. I'll be back to share some big ideas from Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way by Roma Agrawal. Remember, all Next Big Idea book bites are available on our Next Big Idea app, which you can find in your app store. I'm Michael Kovnat. See you tomorrow.